Yeah, if you see yourself doing right, you do right. Welcome to Thursday's Richie Allen Show. It's coming up for five o'clock here in the UK. It is the 9th of June, 2022. And Jam Chowdhury, the Islamic scholar and former solicitor, will be on the programme to talk about the campaign by some Muslims in this country to ban the film Lady of Heaven about the Prophet Muhammad's daughter. We'll talk about that and more with uh, the man himself. I'll also be joined on the programme by the uh, writer, the academic and broadcaster, Kevin Barrett. That will be Thursday's show. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. And if you can bother your backside, you can reach me during the program. It's richieallen.co.uk. Comment live now. You can use comment live or you can use the contact form to reach me during the program. Either way is good with me. I'm sure you'll have plenty to say. On the scenes we're discussing tonight, I didn't mention, but Kevin and myself in hour two will be, what will we be doing? We will be discussing the assassination of RFK Robert Kennedy. That's going to be interesting. The BBC has taken an interest in the assassination of RFK. Kevin Barrett with me later on. That's right. You wait for months and months and months and months and months and months. For a Muslim to come on the, on, on the show, on the radio show, you wait for months and months and months and months, and then two come along at once. Yeah, Kevin is a, is, a, is a Muslim. He converted to Islam some years ago, did Kevin Barrett. Uh, yeah, so Anjam, Lady, Lady of Heaven, the film, we'll get into that. I'm sure you've got thoughts on it. Are you a Muslim? Have you gone to see the film or did you get a chance to see it before it was banned? It wasn't banned. Uh, the UK government has not banned it. But uh, Cineworld Cinemas, because they were a bit nervous about the protests, they have withdrawn the film from, from showings. They're not showing it. Anyway, we'll talk about all of that a bit later on. This interests me. It's a kind of a running theme this week on your Richie Allen show. This is fairly serious. The Welsh government wants to be... Right. The Welsh government plans to make Wales, wait for it, an anti-racist country by the year 2030. It's kind of amazing how often 2030 comes up when you're dealing with silliness. Not just silliness, but, well, horrible Orwellianness. Orwellian things. 2030, Agenda 2030. Now, this is very wrong to make Wales an anti-racist country by 2030. It's been some time since I was in Wales, but I know a lot of Welsh people. I have visited Wales on many, many an occasion. And pretty much the vast majority of people in Wales are anti-racist, just by the very nature of the fact that they exist. They, They don't care about people's races. They just get on with their lives. So Minister Jane Hutt said, this isn't just an exercise in saying the right things, it's a call to action. Conservatives said the government's inability to tackle what they call systemic racism is a direct failure on their part. Since Wales was devolved, well, most of the time since Wales was devolved, it's been Labour 
running the the assembly there. So the conservatives conservatives are saying, well, if there's only racism, it's because of your lot kind of a thing, even though there isn't any real racism. Shouting at somebody wearing a hijab on the street isn't racism, it's stupidity. And there are laws against that sort of thing, quite rightly. We'll come to that a bit later on. So after two years, they will assess Wales' anti-racist action plan. And they will, they will add new goals to it. And they will add new actions to it. It's been drawn up by a group co-chaired by Cardiff University's Professor Emmanuel Ogbonna and Andrew Goodall, who's a permanent secretary to the Welsh Government. It's focusing on specific area. Uh, it's focusing on specific areas of people's experience of racism. You see, if somebody says that they were racially abused or they've experienced racism, we have to believe them. So it includes experiences of everyday racism while riding the bus with people being subjected to Islamophobic comments, racist bullying at schools or teachers unwilling to learn pupils' first names and then shortening names without consent. Really? Listen to this. The Welsh Government's targets include introducing a performance goal linked to anti-racism for leaders. What will leaders have to do dear listener, to demonstrate they're anti-racist. This is spooky, this is sinister, this is horrible stuff, this. Wait for it, the next bullet point, this is the Welsh government stuff now, reverse mentoring and anti-racism training so leaders improve their understanding of racism. Now, for the first time in a couple of weeks, I have fired off an email to to a group like the Welsh Assembly, the Welsh Government. I haven't done it for a while. And I've asked them to tell me if reverse mentoring means that white people will be expected to spend time with a minority ethnic person and be mentored on what racism is. Because if I'm right, and that's what reverse mentoring actually means, you know, the mentoring is where someone in authority or somebody of experience, um, helps somebody of less experience along with their educational journey. That's what a mentor, though we've all had mentors over the years, are they suggesting by reverse mentoring that, you know, people of colour will get to, uh, you know, to tell people who are not of colour about their experiences of racism and what they need to do This is madness. And this will be enshrined in law. Employers will have to improve their understanding and knowledge of the Equality Act and positive action section within it so that they can recruit more people from ethnic minority backgrounds to make up 20% of the workforce at all levels of government. You see, this is tyranny. The population is made up of, it's about 87% white people as it stands. We'll come back to that a bit later on in the programme, funnily enough, not in the monologue. It's mad stuff. Unprecedented, said um, a woman called Uzo Iwobi, the founder and chief executive of Race Council Kimri. can never say that. My Welsh friends will tell me how to pronounce Kimru or Kimri. So, uh, Uzo Iwobi, we are at the cusp of a historic document being published. We feel that for the first time, we are looking at the lived experiences of ethnic minority communities. It's unprecedented. Wow. 
She said it seeks to tackle the root causes of racism, to look at actually how do we lead people, how do we manage people, how do we work with others to deliver a fairer, more authentic and inclusive public service. This is staggering in its lunacy. The Welsh Government wants to make Wales an anti-racist country by 2030. We're going to return to a bit of that um, later on in the programme. Before we do, though, listen to James Evans. James is a Welsh MP, but he's a Conservative Party Welsh MP. Here is James telling none other than Mike Graham of Talk Radio what he thinks about that. This is the problem with the Welsh Parliament. We, we're discussing non-issues at the minute. You know, this has been brought forward by a Welsh Labour government who's been in power in Wales for over 22 years. So if there is a problem with racism in Wales, it's because the Welsh Labour government have never tackled it. We have debates like this over and over and over in the Senate chamber. And as I said earlier, when there are huge issues facing people in this country and the tough choices they have to make for the Welsh people discussing issues like this, which I believe they are issues, but unfortunately they're not the important issues of the day. And the government in Wales like to discuss these because they hide away from their failings on the economy, education and the health service. Mm. Yeah, it's not about that. It's not a, a window dressing exercise by a government that wants to disguise its failings in other areas. No, this is serious shit, this. And it's not just going to be Wales, it's going to be everywhere. Like I said, we'll talk a little bit more about it pretty soon. It's your Richie Allen show. The time is 10 minutes past five, just in case you need to be somewhere. Um, I've written a few bits and bobs for the Richie Allen show website today. I had a bit of time to do it. I had an engineer remotely doing stuff for me. And I was able to uh, to just put a couple of things up there. This is very interesting, big pharma and all of that. Now, an Oxford scientist is claiming that couples receiving counselling could soon be offered drugs to help put the romance back in their relationship, to put the interest back. Right? I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by that. The Times ran with this today. According to the Times, love drugs think Roxy Music, are on the horizon, according to an Oxford University academic who says, we now know enough about the neurochemistry of love to enhance your abilities to find love or to stay in love when it's getting a bit tricky. And they quote someone called Dr. Anna Machen, who's an evolutionary anthropologist, who's written a book about this. She said the pharmacology of attraction was on the frontiers of love research, and she expected that we will see the use of drugs in couples' therapy within five years. And the Times says already there are signs that drugs could play a role in saving marriages. Uh, this year a paper found that taking MDMA, or ecstasy, could help someone feel closer to their spouse, possibly because it helps release the chemical serotonin, which promotes empathy. Machen told the Cheltenham Science Festival she thinks this means MDMA could help people see the world from their partner's view instead of fixating on raised toilet seats and idiosyncratic toothpaste-squeezing techniques. Is that what people fall out of love about? Is that what people end up going to therapy over? Is that why they end up in therapy? Because the bloke leaves the toilet seat up or because she's using... The toothpaste, she's squeezing it from the middle and not from the end. I can't really believe that, but, but maybe I'm wrong. So they, they go on to talk about this. Within a decade, they expect people to squirt oxytocin up their nose 
before they go out on a Saturday night at the same time as having a glass of Prosecco. And I was able to do a bit of digging myself to to complement the article in the, in the Times um, to find that this is not new, new. It's been done before. It was used in the 1970s, MDMA. And in 1998, uh, a paper was published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs by George Greer and Requa Talbert, two psychiatrists. Uh, they were using it in the early 1980s. They would go to people's homes and administer to them a pure dose of MDMA with a booster dose if a client needed it later. It all sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? A dose and then a booster dose. According to the psychiatrist, 90% of their clients benefited from MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, blah, 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 and were better able to move beyond past pains and pointless grudges. (laughs) Can you imagine it? She's raging at you for not emptying the bins. She's raging at you because you've left your shoes and your putrid socks in the hall. Or because you used the last of the toilet roll and didn't go to the cupboard to get another one to put on the little toilet roll holder. And she's raging. And you just said to her, listen, 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 stop now. Have one of these and you pop a pill and it's all great then. Hunky-dory then. Is that what we're supposed to believe? Eh? Would you do it, would you? Would you, would you do it? Would you take a pill to restore your passion for your relationship? Could it work, I mean? If you don't love someone anymore, she doesn't love you anymore, a pill's not going to change that, will it? Will it, though? It might do. They might be working on stuff like that. You're talking hypnotism. You're talking a a form of hypnotism, then, a form of mind control, aren't you? If you could develop a pill, she's genuinely had enough of you. Like, it's not down to the fact that you no longer care about farting out loud. Do you remember, guys, when... What, what stage in the relationship did you feel comfortable enough in your own skin to fart loudly in the bathroom, which could be heard from the bedroom? The things you wouldn't dream of doing when you were just beginning to share a bed and stuff like that. When did you start doing that? For me, I think it was about three weeks. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. So, so, so where was I? I was going somewhere with that. Um... So it's not because you leave the toilet seat up. It's not because you don't put the toilet roll back on the toilet roll handle in the bathroom. It's because she's genuinely not in love with you anymore. Could a pill change all that? I mean, really? I wouldn't be surprised. It's exactly quarter past the hour. This is the Richie Allen Show. That's the Arctic, by the way, breaking wind loudly. That's the moment when the guy just doesn't give a shite anymore. Totally comfortable with everything. Thinks he can do whatever he likes. That's it. That's when she should leave. Absolutely get out. The minute he starts doing that. I remember years ago interviewing an Irish psychiatrist called Fiona in Spain. She was a lovely woman. Very bright woman. And I asked her. Beautiful woman as well, Fiona. I think um, anyone who met her, lovely, very good looking, but a beautiful person. And she was single. And I used to tease her, why are you single, you know? You could, um, you know, the guys would be chasing you. You got it all going for you. She had a lovely daughter. And she said to me, I'll never forget, very deadpan but very serious. Um, I have no time for guys and cleaning up after them, she said, and running around and doing their washing and um, being their shoulder to cry on when, you know, due to their various immaturities and stuff like that. And then she mentioned the farting in the bathroom in the morning. 
I thought, right, yeah. Um, a gay minor league baseball player has kicked off. He spit his dummy out. He's thrown his toys out of the pram because teams have said they won't wear a special baseball uniform with a special Pride logo on it during Pride Month. Quite a few baseball players said, nah, it's all right, thanks, nah. Ah, uh, go on, lads. The uniforms are lovely with the big rainbow uh, thing on, on the breast there, just over the badge, you know, supporting the gays. And some of the players said, nah, it's all right. So this guy, Brian Ruby, came out last year whilst playing in Oregon. He's not playing baseball anymore. He was a minor league player. Um, he's left the sport to pursue a music career. But he's had a proper kickoff, and this has been picked up all, all across the world. This He's absolutely kicked off. And he has equated... The player's refusal to wear the stupid pride symbol, the ridiculous rainbow symbol, he's equated that with homophobia and with guys sending out a message that, you know, gays are not welcome in baseball. It's obviously monumental bollocks, but it's kind of interesting. Again, it goes to the whole narcissism thing, you know. number of people were commenting on various newspapers saying, what is it with these guys? Are they not happy about just being treated normally? Is it not good enough to treat a gay person the same way you would treat everybody else? Do they want to be special? Do they want some sort of exceptionalism or exclusivity? Do they? But um, yeah, I've written about that. It's on richieallen.co.uk. I reckon what happened was when the guy came out last year, I think he became the first active baseball player to be, you know, to say that he was gay. And that's a big clue there, that he was the first one I reckon he enjoyed the limelight a bit and he was delighted to be the first one to come out. But I reckon the limelight faded probably after about two days. Nobody gives a shite, really. You know, the spotlight goes away, the news presenters and producers stop calling and he's pissed off now, I reckon. That's what it is. You get a few headlines and now uh, nobody cares anymore. There is a lot of that. I see a lot of that, even when reading about such matters. Here in the UK, it's 18 minutes past the hour. Um, we will be talking to Anjam Chowdhury very soon about the decision by uh, or the decision of Cineworld, Cineworld's decision rather, to drop a film called The Lady of Heaven. Uh, Cineworld said we wanted to ensure the safety of our staff and our customers. Um, more than 120,000 people signed a petition opposing the screening. They shouldn't have dropped it. The Islamic scholar Anjam Chowdhury will be with me shortly. We'll have a debate about that. We'll have a good old chinwag. You can, of course, weigh in via richieallen.co.uk. Luke says nobody cares. The silent majority don't even bother with mainstream anymore. Thank you. Jenny says, I remember a really good sketch in a comedy show where a woman takes a bloke home and shows him some sexy knickers and says to him, these are the knickers I'm wearing now. Then she shows him some grey-looking baggy knickers and she says, these are the knickers I'll be wearing when we've, be when we've been going out for six months. That's right, Jenny. You get it. Craig says, Big Pharma offering love potions. It's almost amusing. He says he recommends a film called The Giver. It's a dystopian film about a future society totally controlled through genetic engineering drugs to suppress emotions uh, and also strict regulation of language. Thank you, Craig. I'm not familiar with that, but it sounds like one I should watch. Hi to Marcus, who says, All very good, but MDMA gives men no erections. 
says Marcus. Now, Marcus, being a DJ and a bit of a raver, has probably had experience of ecstasy. How dare I? How dare I? Wash your mouth out, Marcus screams at the radio. Maybe he hasn't. I didn't know that. Does ecstasy leave you a bit limp in the trouser department? I've never taken anything like that, not because I'm a holier-than-thou Joe, but because I just have never taken, taken anything like that. Kelly has been on. Kelly Marr, my pal, the Anglo-Irish girl in London. How are you doing, Kelly? With uh, the cats. Ke- Kelly's a crazy cat lady, but a good-looking crazy cat lady. It's unusual. They're as rare as hen's teeth, the good-looking ones. She says, Richie, two months into my relationship, my partner went into the bathroom after I'd been in there and opened all of the windows and was being dramatic and going on about the smell. I was so embarrassed and after that I stopped bothering. So I now just fart in front of him, says Kelly. Yes, role reversal right there, Kelly. (laughs) You go, sister. You break wind where you want. Yes. Absolutely. Rob says it seems to go from leaving with gut ache, from holding it in, to giving each other Dutch ovens in bed, says Rob. What have I started here? Martin in Spain says MDMA will make you loved up with everyone. You love everyone and you go all gooey and fluffy. I tried it once, says Martin. Once, my arse, Martin. You're up to your tits on it now, son. Uh, Bob says, are these the same love drugs some guys drop into a girl's glass on a Saturday night? No. I don't think ecstasy. In fact, I know, off the top of my head, I do know the, the name of the drug, the date rape drug. Is it Rohypnol? And is that the generic name for it? It's probably a more difficult to pronounce chemical name for it. Is it Rohypnol? Yeah, yeah. Never worked for me, Rohypnol. I've gone into nightclubs and I've tried to drug women. It's never worked for me. There must be some hard women in the pubs I go into. <laughs> Yeah, imagine I said that on commercial radio. Imagine you went on, you said, Jesus never worked for me, the other hip. Now, I must have dropped it into about 500 fucking baby shams and never got a shag out of it. Okay, let's move on. It's uh, 22 minutes past the hour. Joe says, I have never used my toilet seat to squeeze the toothpaste tube. Good man, Richard Kelly says, so I get it, I've to spike Sabrina's drink if she's not warming to my old charms. That's a great idea. What have I started here, I said. John says to uh, spice up things in the bedroom, put a big mirror in the bedroom. It works a treat, he says. And then he says something else I'm not going to say on air. And John says, Richie, tell me what the F, what the feck Ben and Jerry's business is with the Rwanda immigration issue. Just sell your poxy ice cream and shut the feck up about politics. Excuse the rant. Uh, John, I'm not familiar with this story. And, uh, you know, I, I do read all the papers. But I'm guessing that Ben and Jerry's has threatened to do, I don't know, has it threatened the UK government somehow over the UK government's plans to deport illegal migrants off to Rwanda, where they'll be processed? I'll have to go look for that. Thank you very much, John. Captain Jack says Wales is anti-politicians. The majority no longer even vote. Nobody gives a shite about race. By the way, here in the valleys, a non-white person is a spectacle to behold, because they are so rare. Thank you, Jack. Leslie says, didn't some Welsh people burn down English holiday homes a few years ago? Wasn't that racist, says Leslie. I hear you're a racist now. Hi to Brambo, Wales, an anti-racist country. But what else could one expect from a nation of inbred sheep shaggers? Well done, Brambo. He's Welsh, by the way. Uh, Peter says, it's great listening to you live, Richie. My ginger stepson is working away. What do you mean your ginger stepson is working away, Peter? There's only one thing 
that should be done with the ginger stepson. And that's beat the living shit out of him. Morning, noon and night. The only, the righteous thing to do. Like a hated ginger stepchild. Nothing worse. The worst thing that God could ever do to a man, if God is running everything, is inflict a ginger stepchild on him. No, no good whatsoever. Hi to Steve Satch. Hi to Angela. Angela, thank you for your lovely message. This is the Richie Allen Show. It's live and proud. That's right. From Salford, from PBG Towers, with you till seven o'clock. Kevin Barrett a bit later on. We'll talk about Sirhan Sirhan, the assassination of RFK. What did it mean? What did it mean? Kevin tells me that Ron Unz has been writing about this and that Ron blames Israel. Now, I don't know too much about Ron Unz. I did invite him on the programme uh, some time ago and he, he never got back to me. That's fine. Absolutely no hard feelings whatsoever, just in case it sounds it. But I think from reading Ron, I think Ron blames everything on Israel. Everything like, no matter what happens. Uh, he voted for Billy in Britain's Got Talent and Billy didn't win. Well, Israel must have fixed it. it the, the Israelis must have fixed the vote. Ron, I think, is one of those. Kevin is not. So we'll have a chat with Kevin. Uh, about that and other issues, Kevin being a Muslim, I will be very interested in his take on the attempts to cancel the film The Lady of Heaven, which is about the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad and other things. We'll talk about all of this during the course of the programme. Anjam Chowdhury will be with me in a couple of moments' time. We'll certainly be talking about that with him. It's always good to be with you, dear listener. It's great to be with you, by the way. Thursday's programme. Comment on it. Comment live on richieallen.co.uk. Leave a message for me. This is the Gypsy Kings because it's kind of warm and human and nice. It's nice. It's kind of summery. Feels a bit summery, anyhow. I used to play this in a nightclub called Muldoon's many years ago and it used to go down a treat. All together now. Quando. Right, it's the Gypsy Kings and Byla May on the Richie Allen Show. It's coming up for 28 and a half minutes past the hour. Let me read this uh, just from my own website today, just very quickly before we welcome Anjan back to the programme. A government advisor has said that appeasing religious mobs will undermine social cohesion. Dame Sarah Khan criticised the government for failing to intervene after protesters caused Cineworld to cancel all UK screenings of a film about the Prophet Muhammad's daughter. Dame Sarah said it would be easy to criticise Cineworld when questions should be asked about what support and help did they receive from local and central government, local MPs and even the police. Cineworld said it pulled the film entitled The Lady of Heaven to ensure the safety of our staff and customers. More than 120,000 people signed a petition opposing its screening while the Bolton Council of Mosques called the film blasphemous. Let's welcome back to the programme the Islamic scholar and former solicitor Anjam Chowdhury. Anjam, it's good to have you back on. Welcome. Yes, thank you very much, Richie. Good to be on your programme. Good to have you on, pal. Um, what do you make of this? Surely Sarah Khan is right here that... Um, it's, we, we shouldn't be bending the knee to religious mobs who want to decide what we can and can't watch. What say you? Well, Sarah Khan is uh, an open enemy, anyway, of Muslims. Uh, she's a full supporter of the British regime in their so-called prevent and channel ca- uh, campaigns, which everybody knows within the Muslim community are there to demonize them and to vilify them and to arrest them and to take their children away from, you know, via the social services. But putting that aside, 
you know, I think it's very important, Richie, to understand that this particular film, so-called film Lady of Heaven, has been made by what we call Shia Rafidis. That is the category they fall in. And this is a non-Islamic uh, sect. It's not uh, uh, Muslim. They have nothing to do with Islam. And their whole agenda is to demonize and vilify and to betray and lie and deceive people about Islam and Muslims. And, you know, the irony is, Richie, that, uh, you know, as a Christian, I don't know if you had a Christian upbringing, Christians believe that the best people, you know, were the companions of Jesus, Isa alayhi salam. And the best people, you know, for the Jews were the companions of Musa alayhi salam, Moses. And yet these people believe that the worst people, you know, ever to walk the face of the earth were the companions of the Messenger Muhammad uh, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this tells you how absurd, you know, uh, their own call is in their own film. And not only that, the most beloved to the Prophet, Aisha radiallahu his wife, you know, whom he said he loves more than anyone, you know, for them is a terrorist, you know, as an enemy of Islam. So this film is just, you know, pure hatred and vilification and demonizing of Islam and Muslims. And, you know, nothing short of that. Right. Let's say I agree with all of that, even though I, I, I don't know that you're right in your characterization of certain people there. But let's just say I agree with all of it. Doesn't change the fact that we don't have blasphemy laws in this country and that I am perfectly capable as an adult, reasonably intelligent, intelligent adult human being, I'm capable of determining for myself if the film has any merit to it or if the film is denigrating Islam. Why should you or the Council of Mosques in Bolton decide what I get to watch and don't get to watch it? Remember, I, yeah. we're, we're working on the premise now that I agree with what you said. In spite yeah. of all that, why can't I watch it? Well, I mean, you must know by now, Richie, that I don't believe in freedom and liberty anyway. I don't believe, uh, you know, the law of this country should be made by human beings. I believe it should be divine law. I believe we should implement the Sharia. So my criteria, my yardstick for judging this is what Allah said and his messenger said. And under that uh, criteria, any attack against any of the messengers is completely prohibited. You know, I mean, you may remember a few years ago, he's dead now, thank God, but Terence McNally, he had a play called Corpus Christi, where he portrayed Jesus, Isa al-Islam, as gay. You know, we had a protest outside the Peasants Theatre in, uh, in North London, and Christians were coming up and saying that we should be out here. So when it's the honour of Jesus or the honour of Muhammad or any of the prophets of God, as a Muslim, I will defend it. You know, and you know and I know that this is very serious, you know, in terms of Muslims. I mean, we, we talked about Will Smith slapping someone because he said something about his wife. Yeah. What about people who, who revere individuals much more than their own parents? But the problem is, you know, the, the problem we have... In history. The problem we have is, is that the great majority of people in the country don't agree with you. The vast majority of people in the UK are white people. Some of them will identify as Christians. Some of them will be Jews. A very tiny percentage will be Jews and a very tiny percentage of them will be Muslims. They don't agree with you. I respect and I genuinely do respect your faith and your desire to have the country governed by the Sharia. But you are in a tiny minority. That's not yeah. going to happen. You've got, you either get elected uh, to, you know, to affect some change there or, and I don't say this to be rude, or you move to a country which does implement the Sharia and which does, you know, agree with banning films. You can't answer the central question. We've had this out for so many years and you're as slippery as an eel. I'm not insulting you. Why, yeah. should, the, why should the minority, Muslims make up less than 4% of the people of this country and I guarantee you there will be a lot of Muslims, I don't know how many, who won't agree with the banning 
of the film, yeah. which hasn't been banned. Why should the majority bend the knee to a minority? I might want to go and see that film. Why should yeah. I not be able to do so without guys shouting and threatening me outside the cinema as I walk in? Well, I mean, one thing we have to make clear here, this land, which you call a country, doesn't belong to the people. It belongs to Allah. It belongs to God. Whether we That's your opinion, Anjan. That's your opinion. Yeah, no, but the, the point being, Richie, that whoever has authority doesn't mean we just follow the masses. You know, if people make up laws by their own whims and desires. I mean, 100 years ago, homosexuality was frowned upon. You couldn't even walk down the street with your girlfriend, you know, unless you were married. You know, now, you know, people are coming out having marriages, you know, between men in America. Bestiality is illegal. You can marry a cow in America. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, you shouldn't you be juxtaposing. Hang on, hang on, Anjum. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't be juxtaposing homosexuality with bestiality. That's not fair, that. That's outrageous. Well, I think it is. But the no, it, it's not fair. Coming back to your question, coming back to answer your question then directly, you know, whether we have blasphemy laws or not, I mean, the hypocrisy is palpable. You cannot have, land, uh, you cannot have slander, label, hatred laws. You know, you can't, you can't, I mean, you're upset about my comments about homosexuality because there are homophobic laws in this country. You know, there are laws against inciting racial and religious hatred. I mean, what about if we had a, we had a film tomorrow? I don't know. Uh, taking the mick out of the people who died in Manchester Arena. What about if we had a film denying the Holocaust? What do you think the reaction would be? You know, under under so-called freedom in this country, there isn't freedom, Richie. You've got to understand that, you know, it's open season to attack Islam. I never said the country was free. I never said the country was free. Let me come back on that. You're right, if somebody made a film satirising the attack at Manchester Arena, there would be outrage. But remember, that's that's a, a vastly different thing than making a film which depicts the image of which rep- with, with an actor representing um, the Prophet Muhammad or, or his daughter it's, it's, it's vastly different you, you put a film out about the arena there are a lot of very um, suffering, grieving parents and, and grandparents still around who have to, you know, who would have to put up with that? Muhammad was around yeah, centuries you, ago. You, you, I agree with you. You can't equate it, Richie. No. But you're talking about upsetting maybe a few hundred or a few thousand people. Yeah. Here, this particular film is, you know, upsetting up to two billion Muslims around the world. But and, aren't you, know, you a bit thin-skinned, though, Anjan? Let me ask you this. Us, it's like me insulting your father or your children. You never tolerate it. No, but 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 I, what I can't understand is this. Why are some, because I don't believe that you represent all Muslim opinion, why are some Muslims so thin-skinned? That's question number one, thin-skinned. And number two, am I to believe, and I don't say this to be insulting to anyone who is a Muslim, please believe me, but am I to understand that towards the end of his days that the Prophet, the blessed Prophet Muhammad left some standing order that nobody ever portray him in a film or nobody ever draw a likeness of him. It sounds like religious mania to me, Anjam. And again, I don't say that to be, you know, a bit of a bastard. I mean, it just sounds... And, and the thin-skinned aspect of it. I mean, come on, why not debate these people who made this film and stand up to them and ask them what they were doing instead of calling for the film to be banned? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's not about being thin-skinned, quite frankly, Richie. The fact is that the Messenger Muhammad uh, said many things, and he did many things in his life, including, in one duration, he said, whoever insults the Prophet, you know, kill him. He carries capital punishment. Obviously, I'm not saying that people should carry this out in this country, but the thing is, under Sharia, under the Islamic court, that would be the punishment if you attack the Prophet. And this That's madness. Portray, portrays the Prophet's wife, 
you know, in a way which is attacking his own honor, let alone depicting him, obviously, you know, by an actor. But, you know, I mean, these things aside, you know, the, the main thing I think that people are you know, concerned about is that all of this is inciting hatred and animosity against the Muslims and against Islam. And the thing is, you know, we need to we need to we need to understand that these things will have repercussions. We've seen it before. I mean, it's an outrage that the Queen herself, you know, so-called, uh, you know, protector of the face, recently gave this honor to Salman Rushdie, who openly attacked the uh, honor of the Prophet as well. So, I mean, we're living in a society where, as I say, you can attack Islam and Muslims, you can demonize them, and it's not at the end of his life. You know, this is this is well entrenched understanding of Islam under the Sharia. You cannot attack the honor of the Prophet or any of the Prophets. You know, and it's not just, uh, as I say, the Messenger Muhammad, uh, it's Jesus or Moses or Abraham or any of them. So this is our stance. And, you know, it's, uh, you, you may have different values. Your means of judging and evaluating what is good or not is according to maybe the law of the land, maybe some liberal or democratic values that you hold. I don't hold those values. I believe supremacy belongs to God alone. And the Sharia needs to be implemented. And, you know, but I don't believe in God. Hang on, you've had a good run there. Quite frankly, quite frankly, I was born here, and wherever I am in the world, whether England or anywhere else, I will call for the Sharia because you know this is my duty and my responsibility. You know, if I'm in Iran tomorrow, I'll do it there. But you know, Iran, the, you know, these people are killing and torturing the Muslims under the same belief as this uh, uh, this fellow. I can't even remember his name now. This uh, Yasser uh, Abu Allah, whatever his name is who produced this film, you know, or, or wrote the script for this film, they're the, they're the very ones who slaughtered Muslims in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, you know. Uh, you know and it might the be true, Anjam. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on, let me back in. Our life as, uh, as, as not protected, and that's why they do it. And this film is about that. Let me back in. A um, couple of things I want to pick you up on there. Every faith group in this country, um, I think can make a legitimate argument that they're being marginalized. It's not this is not an exclusive this is not exclusive to Islam or or Judaism. It's happening to Christians and it's been happening to Christians for years in this country. I'm agnostic. I don't know what I believe. And number one. Um number two, um I meant to ask this earlier on. Have you seen the film? And if if not, why not? Yeah, I wouldn't give it. I wouldn't give it the time of day. Quite frankly, I've seen enough of it, and I've heard enough from people who are trustworthy to know that it includes uh, portraying uh, the wife of the Prophet Aisha uh, as a terrorist. I know that it depicts uh, Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman. Uh, you know, may Allah bless all of them as terrorists as well, and the fact that they supposedly killed Fatima uh, radiallahu anha, even the Prophet himself, is completely ridiculous. I mean, those things which everybody has uh, has written about are in and of themselves enough. I'm not going to give it the, the time of day to watch it. Why should I watch something like that that is so insulting? You know, I think it's absolutely right. You know, the, the, the Prophet said, whoever sees an evil, let him change it with his hand. So, you know, the job of a Muslim is to change and stop it physically. And if not, verbally. And the least is to hate it in our hearts. So these people were doing it verbally outside the cinema. You know, I mean, the first duty of a Muslim is to stop something like this with their own hands. So, I mean... You know, it could get out of hand in this country. And, you know, whether whether you agree about blasphemy or not, I wouldn't call it blasphemy anyway. I call it defending and protecting the life and the wealth 
you know, uh, the honor of the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam and his, you know, his family and the, and the companions. I mean, this is an, an obligation upon us. I would say to people, I've said this to you before over the years. First of all, I'm I'm genuinely staggered that a solicitor or a former solicitor, a man of the law, you know, a man of reason, hasn't endeavour to watch the bloody thing first before coming down so hard on it. But look, we'll leave that alone um, for now. This this is the way it is. I'm an intelligent, reasonable, uh, open-minded and fair guy. I can make my own mind up if I go to the cinema, whether the intention of the producers and the director was to denigrate Islam and to insult the Prophet Muhammad, uh, the Prophet's daughter, and other important figures of the day, me. That's the first point. The second point is, there are no blasphemy laws in this country, right? This is a predominantly white country. Um, A minority of people should have no right whatsoever to prevent a film being shown in a cinema just because it might hurt their feelings. Where, Where would that end if we were to live uh, along those lines? And I would say it again, for Muslims in this country who want to live like that, I reckon they've got two choices, and only two choices. One is they form a political party that's eventually strong enough to get elected in this country, and then you can have at it and bring in whatever laws you want, or that you can get through Parliament. Or two, move to Iran or to Saudi Arabia or somewhere else <laughs> where where they live like that. It's as simple yeah. as that. I know you. I know you're a Brit. I know you're a British man. Saudi Arabia and Iran are the most corrupted regimes and and far removed from Islam. You know, as as you can imagine. But you have but a lot. Of, you have a lot in common with them, the third, though. The third option. The third option is to call for Islam as an alternative. I don't believe in democracy. I don't want to go through their system. I've always maintained that we enjoin good and forbid evil, openly, publicly show Islam as a superior alternative way of life to get rid of the, of the, 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 the uh, you know, the, the, the oppression of man-made law, the alcohol, the drugs, the prostitution, the, all of the evils of, uh, of so-called democracy and freedom to replace them with, uh, with, uh, with Islam and the Sharia. And the other thing, of course, is that uh, people, whether minority or majority, are not are not the arbiter. They're not the yardstick to, with which to judge the truth. All people were created by God, and I think that the the uh, the sad thing is, and the insulting thing is, that the messengers and prophets that God sent to mankind to lead them from the darkness in which they live into the light and beauty of obeying Him, rather are demonized and insulted. And this is a real issue. You know, it's not about minority or majority. You know, the, major, the, the, the kind of dictatorship of the majority or minority is not in, on my agenda, has never been, has not been something that I call for. I don't believe in political parties. I believe we need to implement divine law. I call that the Sharia or Islam or whatever you want to call it. It's tyranny, Andrew. It's I, tyranny. I, I engage with people on that. I debate and discuss that. But isn't but it tyranny, though? Can, can I ask you this? An- Anjan Chowdhury is our guest, by the way. I have an email address not an email address, excuse me. I probably panicked you there. I have a, a website address. There's Mr. Anjamchowdhury.com, but there's also. That's fine, yeah. Is that okay? That's MRAnjamchowdhury.com. If you want to read more of uh, Anjam's thoughts, and you might very well do, get on there and read them. Let me put this to you. Don't interrupt me for a minute till I'm finished, and then you'll get all the time you want to respond. This, okay. I said tyranny. I was wrong. I interrupted you while you were speaking. I said tyranny. I'll tell you why I think it's tyranny. Right? Don't interrupt me. There's no evidence that some divine creator uh, created the heavens and the earth and breathed life into every human being on the planet. A lot of people believe it from different faiths and I totally respect their right to believe it. And a lot of the principles 
that guide Islamists and Christians are beautiful things. I live my life by many of these principles, or at least I try to. But I don't believe that a divine creator sent us down to planet Earth to watch us and how we behave and to promise us paradise at the end of it. I don't believe that. And it is absolutely tyranny for somebody else to try and impose that belief upon me and tell me that I have to live by some set of divine laws that they tell me are real and legitimate because they read them in a book. That's tyranny, Anjan. I'll tell you what's tolerance. What's tolerance is this. You live in a country where 87% of the people are white. I know I'm repeating myself, I've said that already. Where the great majority of people are not Islamic. But like me, they do not um, have any problem living alongside people like you, working with people like you, sharing food with people like you, um, or you going to your uh, mosque for prayers on Fridays and, and doing your thing. We have no past tolerance. What you want to impose on people is intolerance. It's a tyranny that I've got to go along with these rules and regulations because you tell me that some prophet, whether it's Muhammad the Blessed Muhammad or, or, or Jesus or Moses uh, centuries and centuries ago told us that God told them these are the rules, you give these to the people. To try and impose that on people and to use terms like Sharia and even mention violence even though you haven't said that you support violence but even just mention it that some people would, you know, would murder people and the apostates and the martyrs and all of that. It's absolute tyranny. Why should the majority be told what to believe by the, by the minority. Why can't we leave it the way things are? You go and do your thing and we'll go and do our thing and okay. uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, let me first of all tell you what is tyranny, uh, Richie. Tyranny is the democratically elected government in Great Britain and in America bombing and murdering millions of people in Iraq, Agreed. in Afghanistan, supporting the, uh, the oppression and the injustices in Syria, and all around the world in the name of freedom and democracy. What we find is that this is dictatorship of the majority. Because people are majority or minority, it does not make them right. That's my whole point. The truth is known by the evidences, by the divine evidences, I would say. And if you don't believe in God, then I will invite you to Islam. You know, I mean, you can take your shahada, your testimony of faith, Richie, live now on the radio. You know, and, uh, you know, millions of Muslims, you know, around the world will embrace you as one of their brothers. But in the meantime, you know, it's our job to invite you to accept Islam as an alternative before you pass away. So, you know, this is our job as an individual. But at the same time, my job as an individual living in society is to in, in, in enjoy good and forbid evil wherever and whenever I see it. And it's not just about the honor of the prophet. You know, we are out there condemning, you know, the kind of, you know, the manifestation of man-made law, as I said, in alcohol, in drugs, in prostitution, in all of the corruption within the economic system. I mean, you only need to see uh, Rishi Sunak's, uh, you know, economic policies to know that, you know, the elderly and the poor in this country are having to choose between warmth and food in the winter. This is not right. You know, and the, the people are getting fatter, you know, by, by all of the interest and the, the, you know, kind of, if you like, the, 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 you know, the billionaires in this country and the extreme Rishi aristocracy, they hoard the money. You see, so we need a system which can deal with the economic woes in this country, the social woes. You know, we need to deal with some of the exploitation of the poor, you know, and the vulnerable. And I think that, that we need an alternative. I think that alternative is Sharia, is Islam. You may think it's something different. So we're in this debate and discussion about what is the future for Britain. You know, it's not about, as I say, or uh, as you're talking about, some aspects, you know, of what you may, may deem to be Islam around the world. The reality is 
that democracy, freedom and liberalism are not working. Wherever we look, you know, it's the, it's led to dictatorship and uh, and atrocities and oppression. You know, the the, 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 the bastions of freedom and democracy, as we say, the British, the French, the Americans, look at what they're doing in the domestic and foreign policy. Agreed. I mean, you only need to look at, you need to look at the, the rampant crime rates and the suicides in these countries to know that it's just not working. People need an alternative. And I think turning to God and putting our trust in him, believing in him, you know, is, is the way forward. A lot of my listeners are in complete agreement with you that a kind of a turning away from God has led to some of the horrific things that you've just talked about there. And I'm open to this. I'm very open to it. I have been, you, you know, most of the time I've been broadcasting. That's what I do. I'm, I'm open to ideas. The problem I have, and I hate to repeat myself, is you said you believe the Sharia should be implemented. And in that world then, I would be punished for going to the pub with my mates to watch a game and have a beer. I'd there be punished be for that. There won't be a pub under the Sharia, Richie. Okay, well, well, let me put it another way. Let me put it another way. There won't be any cinemas, so you won't be going to watch Thirty of Heaven. There won't be any theatres, you know. But there will no be, theatres. You know, it sounds lovely. That I can't wait to live in this world, Anjan. You see, that's well, what I'm talking about. That's why. That's why people's minds have been so, uh, you know, damaged and uh, and trodden on by the drug and alcohol culture. You know that we have the Hollywood uh, and all of this kind of these video games where people. You know, uh, practice shooting people. You know, in virtual reality. I and agree with you. In schools in America, I mean, you know, you don't want to live in a society. No, like that. I don't. But we don't have a society like that here. Listen, let me ask you this. Um, this has really stimulated our listeners. By the way, Anjam Chowdhury is our guest, a very, very good friend of mine, who's a Christian lady. Uh, Jean Ann is her name. Now she's an actress and she's performed in theatres. Yet she's a wonderful woman, very principled woman, lives her life properly, and you deny her the chance to act in theatres. Um, I'll never forgive you for that, Anjam. Um, Jean-Anne says, my tongue is in my cheek, by the way. She says, some of us Christians think we are heading uh, into end times. Do, Muslim, do Muslims have anything um, like that to boast of, she says. I think she means, um, would it be your belief that because of the turmoil in the world, the ugliness, the, the, the evil, yeah. that we're coming to the end of something? Do you feel that way? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we are today facing many of the signs of the hour, which the Prophet Muhammad uh, predicted. You know, when he talked about when, you know, alcohol consumption was rampant, fornication and all of these kind of ills of society are there. Then wait for the big signs of the hour. One of the big signs of the hour is the return of Jesus. He said, well, you know, where he would be a Muslim, he'll pray with the Muslims, he'll, he'll uh, condemn the worship of the cross you know, and the consumption of pork and these kind of things. So we do believe that we are reaching that time. And Allah knows best when the Day of Judgment will come, but definitely there are many, many signs where now people are waiting for the bigger signs of the hour. And as I say, one of them is uh, the return of Jesus, Isa uh, al and also the Antichrist, the Dajjal as well. You know him as Antichrist, you know him as the Dajjal, yeah. the, the liar. I mean, he will be there as well. That will be a big test for the Muslims and uh, even the non-Muslims. So... You know, there, there are signs there. And, you know, my invitation as well to this Christian lady, look at Islam uh, away from the propaganda, away from the lies, which may have been told to her, I don't know, maybe in the, in the, in the church or some of their own periodicals. No, I don't and think Irish. I don't, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't just, don't just drop a bomb in there now, no pun intended. And, um, I'm not condemning. I'm not or condemning, throw a grenade. Hang on. But you're making assumptions there. I, I went to plenty of masses. 
in, in Catholic churches in Ireland when I was younger. I never heard a priest give a sermon where he um, criticised or even mentioned Islam. It just doesn't go on. Andrew. Well, I, I, I have seen, okay, maybe this lady does not have that in her local church. But what I say to her is that Muslims believe in Jesus. We believe he was one of the greatest prophets of Allah. And uh, we don't believe he's the son of God. We believe he worshipped God. And we believe the same about uh, Moses and about all of the prophets, including Muhammad. So, you know, we believe in the one true God. We don't believe there are three gods. We don't believe he's born or he has a mother or a father for that, for that matter. And, you know, it's an invitation for her and for you to look at Islam and to, to, to embrace it as a way of life. You know, you know in, 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 our, in our current conversation, we're talking about a film you know, which insults the prophet, insults his companion. So obviously, it's a heated discussion. But you and I both know, Richie, that we can have a, a, a conversation about the concept of, you know, the existence of God, about our relationship with him, how we should live our life. And it may be many parts of Islam that people misunderstand. We have a very wholesome life. We only eat the good food. We don't drink alcohol. We don't consume drugs. We only have a relationship with our own wives. You know, we, you know, we don't believe in abortion. So, you know, it's a very pro-life, a pro, uh, a pro, if you like, justice and pro-goodness type of life that we invite. And like I said, I invite this lady as well as you too. Like I said, there will be many people listening to this programme, non-Muslim people, who will find a lot of what you said palatable. We're just about out of time for today. MrAnjamChowdhury.com MrAnjamChowdhury.com is uh, Anjam's website. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. I appreciate that. You never uh, say no. You always come on for a good debate, Anjam. Thanks for your time today. You're welcome, Rishi. I look forward to the next uh, time we have a little debate. Sounds good to me. Thanks, Anjam. Anjam Chowdhury there, Islamic scholar and former solicitor, live on the line from his home in London. Angus says, I am offended by the actions of the grooming gangs. Doesn't that count? Uh, Thanks, Angus. Um, You know what? You sent that at a time when we were speaking about something, so I probably... I don't know exactly what you mean there, but maybe just during some point in the, the debate there. Colin says, what's this bullshit got to do with watching a film? Um, Richard says, natural law, no religion owns it, in, in his opinion. Alice says, he does not know it, but government is what he is talking about. Get rid of governments and it's paradise, says Alice. Thanks, Alice. George says, I'm clapping right now. Yes, this is brilliant. Say it how it is. He might be clapping Anjam. I don't know who he's clapping. Uh, Bruce says, this guy is stuck in a mind trap with no escape. Islam is at the same stage that Christianity was 500 years ago. Him and people like him from any faith are basically mentally ill. It's a bit harsh, Bruce. I don't think he's mentally ill. I think he's committed to his faith, I believe. You know? Um, very committed to it. But like I said, when you some, I've, it's always the same with me, whether I I've interviewed conservative Christians over the years or or some you know or conservative Islamists you know there are many things said many ideas that I don't and couldn't possibly disagree with you know the not the the no usury law in in countries where Islam is predominant you know that that lenders are not allowed to charge interest to people I like that you see You see, that suits me. I have a lot of sympathy with his stance on anti-abortion. I understand why alcohol, I understand why people fear or um, frown upon alcohol. I understand all this stuff. But it's the imposition of a belief system on me 
telling me this is the way it's going to be. And if you don't like it, there may be punitive measures taken against you. Um, and that's the way it is. You know, some interpretations of the Sharia do involve fairly serious punishments. He said there won't be any pubs. What if I was to grow a few potatoes and make a little bit of poutine because I wanted to watch a game of football on television? Football isn't forbidden by the Sharia, thank God for that. So if I wanted to have a, a bottle of poutine and I wanted to get some some, some Pepsi or some Coca-Cola, um, there would be consequences for doing that under his um, style of, of governance. I can't tolerate that. I'm all for freedom of religious belief and freedom to worship 100%. I, you've heard me bitch about, you know, when Christian people are told they can't wear, you know, expressions of their, of, of their faith. You know, you can't have a little cross and all this stuff has gone on. And I can't bear that shite. But, um, yeah. David says, I'm starting to love this guy. Thank you, David. A lot of comments on this. Uh, Chris says, I agree, Richie. If you don't like this country and its laws, bugger off. The problem is he was born here. He's a British Muslim. Why should we bend the knee to 4% of the population? One of the nicest people I've worked with was a Nigerian Muslim. Every shift I worked with him, he was the only person who would always ask me how I was and how my wife and children were. We travelled a little bit in North Morocco, El Frogo and myself, and we obviously went to Tangiers and then we went south of Tangiers. Um, we headed for Fez. I, I, I kind of fell in love with the with 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 the with the way that people were living in the in the town and in the villages that we saw, I fell in love with it. You know, the selflessness of people, the interest that people had in each other. How in a little village individual people would have individual responsibilities and they would all work together for the core um goals of the little village and there weren't really any governments, there weren't really any local authorities, there wasn't really a council. What there was and I really appreciate this about Muslims, what there was 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 there were elders that would solve disputes and the, the, the solving of the disputes didn't result in somebody getting flogged or somebody getting whipped or, or excommunicated. They were solved by common sense. We were asking all these questions I love that. I love the fact that, that Muslims frown upon putting mum or dad into a home if mum or dad can't look after themselves. Now listen, before you scream at me, I'm well aware that there are times when you can't meet the needs of your senior mum or senior dad. I'm well aware of it. But my Muslim friend Salah from, from Rush Home in Manchester, who used to cut my hair when I had hair, Libyan Muslim, lovely man, not remotely judgmental, but I used to ask him things like, what, what are the things, I mean, I know that Western culture, I know, he'd only moved from Libya, he'd only, he spoke good English, but he'd only moved from Libya. I said, there must be things, you know, that you see around here that you think, my God, like, this is a bit shocking. And without being jud judgmental and being very careful, because he didn't want to be imposing his views on people, he got to know me and he said, well, Richie, to see young girls going around wearing the clothes they're wearing or not really wearing any clothes. He said, I find that horrendous. I don't understand. Where are their parents? I had to agree with him. He said, we're, 
across the street from an old folks home? What happened to looking after your old mum or your old dad? Weren't we absolutely helpless and incapable of looking after ourselves when we came into the world? But our parents looked after us. Don't we owe them that courtesy when they're coming to the end of their lives? All of these things. I have a lot to time for. You know, I've met many a Muslim. I never met one I didn't like, to be honest. Um, but then you have the, dare I say, the extremists, you know, who would impose Sharia. No theatres, are you kidding me? Theatres, as my aforementioned pal would tell you, are the soul of a city, of a nation. Theatres. Didn't she tell me once about theatres being built next to hospitals? Didn't you tell me that, Jean Anne? Was it the Greeks who did that? It's always the Greeks. The Greeks put the theatres next to the hospitals because of the therapeutic value of, of going to see a play, to laugh, to cry, to be moved. What's that all about, no theatres? And I don't believe for a minute that the Prophet Muhammad, I'll say the Blessed Prophet, in case I offend somebody, would be offended at an actor playing him in, in, in a film, even if the film is portraying Incidents that are historically inaccurate. I can't believe that for a minute. Would you like to hear some Van de Man? I'd love to hear some Van de Man. As the time is three minutes past six, this is the Richie Allen Show. How are you doing? Welcome to the show if you're joining me. Late, that is. Live on richieallen.co.uk. We're live as well on the TuneIn app. That's at TuneIn Radio, TuneIn.com. Just look for the Richie Allen Show. Live from Salford, love the place, delighted to be here. Made for us for the time being, I think, made for us. Right, um, lots to get through between now and seven o'clock. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Now, Sunday morning melodies is the cut-off point. Mark Boyerski, for the last couple of weeks, has very generously uh, been uh, collecting the funds. When people buy an e-book on markboyerski.com, uh, he's been sending, or he will be sending, uh, the proceeds to the Richie Allen Show. That will come to an end on Sunday at midday. On Sunday. So between now and Sunday at midday, if you buy uh, a book, an e-book on markboyerski.com, that will be a way of supporting the Richie Allen Show. And it gets better than that, because if you do buy an e-book, you will go into a draw there are 14 prizes, crystals and pendants. They're pretty spectacular. To find out more about that, go to youtube.com and go to Mark's channel. That's Mark Bayerski on YouTube, okay? Buy an ebook. All the proceeds go to richieallen.co.uk. They go to me. They go to the Richie Allen Show. Um, and that runs until the end of Sunday Morning Melodies this coming Sunday at midday. Thanks again to Mark for his help. His website, which I've given a mention to already, I'll do again, is Mark. MarkBoyerski.com. The time is coming up for nine minutes past the hour. A lot of comments. Thank you for them. I'm really interested to get Kevin's perspective on this. Uh, Kevin, of course, being uh, Kevin Barrett, who some years ago converted to Islam. He is a practicing Muslim, and I'm sure he will have been following all of the furore about the 
the the film which is which which hasn't been banned at all, but uh, which you cannot see at the moment, at least not in Cineworld cinemas. This is uh, the movie about uh, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad, which uh, uh, I don't think too many people probably would have gone to see. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? It's always been the way over the years. If you tell people they can't watch something, or they shouldn't do, it's um, just going to light a fire underneath you. Uh, the film is called The Lady of Heaven, by the way. Interestingly enough, the critics haven't said too, too many kind things about it. I read a couple of reviews on the Internet Movie Database, otherwise known as imdb.com, and apparently the critics don't think very much of it. Shall we welcome Kevin back to the programme? Love having him on. He's an old friend. In fact, there's only one more, I think there's only one other guy that I've been speaking to longer. That'll tell you how often and uh, how way back we go, Kevin Barrett and myself. I mentioned because of the last topic that some years ago Kevin converted to Islam, but he's much more than that. He is a scholar, an academic, he's a writer, uh, a broadcaster. You'll find more about him at uns.com, unz.com, but more importantly, truthjihad.com. From Wisconsin, it's your friend and my friend, the one and only Kevin Barrett. Kevin, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Richie. What a wonderful introduction. I tell you, I practiced them for hours before the show. I look into a mirror because I want my guests to feel special, Kev. And you've been with me, I don't know, what, 10, 11, 12, it's longer. Um, years we've been speaking, so it's always good to have you on. Before you came on, I was speaking to another Muslim gentleman. It's like it's like that old English guy, Kevin. You wait for a bus for for hours and hours and hours, and then two come along together, uh, two Muslims in the same show. I had Anjam Chowdhury on, and he is all in favour of a film which talks about the or or portrays the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, a film that's caused a bit of controversy here in the UK, you're probably aware of it. Um, they want to ban uh, Muslims in this country. We don't have blasphemy laws in this country, but they're upset about it. They've protested outside cinemas, and some cinemas have decided not to show uh, the film as a direct result of that. The film, of course, is, uh, what's it called again? Uh, the Lady of Heaven. What do you know about this story, Kevin? Uh, pretty much nothing, Richie. I guess I've been so busy following the Ukraine war and all of these domestic disturbances here in the United States, uh, school shootings and January 6th. More important uh, stuff. Yeah. Right. So so I wasn't, th th I should have actually sent you a text. That was very rude of me not to send you it because it sounds like I'm kind of shanghaiing you now and I'm not. You're making me look like an idiot. No, you're not. God, no, you're not an idiot. Far from it. No, you're in the States. You, you, you have a lot to, to cover. Look, I don't think this story has made international news, Kevin. So you wouldn't have seen it. Um, a film has come out. It's uh, The Lady of Heaven and it, uh, it, it, it portrays um, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, Fatima, I think. Um, Muslims are annoyed about it here in the UK. They say it's historically inaccurate and the portrayal of the Prophet uh, is not good anyway. They've called it blasphemous and they've uh, called for it to be banned and one cinema in particular has pulled it. I don't agree with censorship. Um, I would prefer that those Muslims were a bit thicker skinned and would rather engage the filmmakers 
rather than have it banned. Sorry to surprise you with that. It's very unprofessional of me. I should have sent you uh, a little link to a story beforehand. So we probably shouldn't talk about it then. Um, well, 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 Richie, uh, Anjum Chowdhury, is, is, isn't he that kind of extremist character that I remember debating on press TV? Yeah, Anjum is, well, well, I, sh- I shouldn't say, yeah. The British press uh, w- would refer to him as a hate preacher. He's in favour of implementing the Sharia. He said some things over the years that have, I suppose, trodden a very thin line between endorsing um, what we would you know, consider to be extremist things uh, or not. Very clever bloke, very, very clever uh, former solicitor, uh, born in the UK and did spend some time in jail in the UK for being member, a member of a prescribed group. Um, but I've known him for yonks, as we say, here in the UK and I enjoy speaking with him because... He's got some interesting things to say. Yeah, he was on with me. He's in favour of banning the film. I obviously wasn't. It was a good, healthy debate. Look, I respect why some Muslims might be annoyed if they think the Prophet is being insulted. But I also kind of respect free speech more than anything. Um, And that's the kind of point I was making to him. Yeah, I mean, these things really depend on the circumstances. I basically agree with the idea that blasphemy is an exception to free speech principles, uh, just like uh, libel and uh, genuine threats um, and uh, fighting words that could are likely to elicit violence. There, there are a list of these kinds of exceptions to free speech, and the U.S. has done a pretty good job overall in its history of jurisprudence in lining those up. Um, now, the question then becomes, well, just how blasphemous is this particular example and uh, do we need to ban it or not? And that's something that it all depends on the circumstances. I haven't seen the film. I don't know anything about it. So I can't really offer an opinion on that, but I can offer an opinion on Anjum Chowdhury. He's a chowderhead. I, I've debated him too, Richie, uh, on Press TV at least once, I think a couple of times. And uh, he drives me crazy. I mean, I, I think he makes Muslims, especially traditional Muslims, look bad. I mean, I, I think Sharia is great. I mean, the properly interpreted, you know, just like you might think that English common law is great uh, or somebody in France might think the Napoleonic code is great, but it all depends on how you interpret it. And I think that he has a kind of boneheaded, literalistic and extremist interpretation of these things. And frankly, I've always considered him to be a likely suspect as an MI6 Muslim, you know, out of that uh, Finsbury Park mosque run by MI6 designed to generate Muslims who look extremist and make Islam look bad. Would you believe it over the years I've repeatedly asked him was he working for British intelligence um, <laughs> I'm, and, and he's, he's obviously denied it I've always been friendly with him I didn't agree with his prison sentence um, I didn't you know I, I reviewed that case myself and I, I think he was stitched up um, is, is Anjan British intelligence I don't know I, c- I could understand why some would say he is I've asked him about it. I've challenged him hard on that point. I enjoy speaking with him. You know, he's respectful. Yeah, you might say that some of the things he says have an Old Testament flavour to them. You can imagine some of the old um, hellfire and brimstone preachers (laughs) years ago, Kevin. But but look, he's interesting. This is a show that platforms everybody who has a say on anything. And, And it always will be. I'd love to have seen some of those debates you had with him. Let's leave that film alone. We will talk about RFK. And Sirhan, Sirhan, because it's so interesting that uh, RFK's um, great friend Paul Schrader wants the case reopened because he believes there's more to it than meets the eye. And I'd love to get your thoughts on that. But I can't not um, start with um, Matthew McConaughey, who is getting a lot of criticism, which I think is a bit unfair. It might be because I'm biased, Kevin. I like some of his films. He seemed to be genuine 
when speaking at the White House about his angst, his grief at what happened in the school in Uvalde. You know, he's from the area. Um, he, he, he's had his say. He's getting criticised for it. We don't understand Kevin over here because it's not, you know, the done thing to own a gun unless you want to go and hunt, you know, pheasants or rabbits or, or whatever. Give us um, a kind of, um, give us your generally always well-considered view of what has happened since those children and teachers, God love them, were, were murdered uh, two weeks ago. It's been a bit crazy, hasn't it? Well, it has. And there are all kinds of suspicions about this particular shooting, as there are about so many uh, spectacular violent events that grab headlines here in the United States. And I think some of those suspicions are often well-founded. In in this case, uh, there was a big uh, anomaly uh, right away. We noticed that the police were right there and spent nearly an hour uh, right in the hall, you know, as the killer was still killing children. And they made no attempt to breach that part of the building and interrupt the killings. And that is just very strange. It totally violates the protocol for uh, mass shootings. So some have, like, I, for instance, my friend John Hankey, who is a bit of a, a slightly paranoid researcher about these things, but you have to be, uh, given the material, thinks that this could be another MK Ultra style event. And his idea of the motivation is not the standard sort of right-wing interpretation that they're coming to take our guns, but rather he thinks that the Republican Party actually profits from changing the topic to gun control. And he thinks that the abortion controversy is killing the Republicans and that shifting the topic to gun control will help them. Now, I disagreed with him. I, Frankly, I'm, I'm puzzled. I don't see any compelling motivation here for it being that kind of a publicity stunt false flag uh, with the Manchurian candidate. And of course, that would bring us over to the RFK case. Yeah. Uh, but basically, my overall take on these shootings, which have been increasing exponentially since, say, 1960, is that they do reflect a deep strain of violence in the American character and American history. If you go back and look at the way this country was settled and taken from the natives, and then uh, slaves were brought in to make people great fortunes and so on, there's just incredible uh, violence here. Uh, Cormac McCarthy's book, Blood Meridian, is probably the greatest American novel right up there with Moby Dick, describing uh, the hideously uh, bloody uh, settlement of the Southwest. And uh, so I, I, I'm frankly, there are a lot of things about this country that are driving me crazy. And I might not I might not live here in this country too, a, whole, a whole lot longer. I might be going somewhere else, actually. And this is just one of them. We'll pick that up maybe a bit later on, although I'm, I'm sure there won't be too much you can tell me. Yeah, there, a lot is wrong with it. The 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 the, the reaction of the police and. Look, I know that sometimes people do get things wrong and that protocol isn't sometimes followed, but I'm also not stupid. I'm not naive. You know, they do a lot of training, even in small towns, for such an eventuality on how to deal with an active shooter, a man or a woman running around a school with a gun. And their response was was pathetic. And and that's coming from everybody. That's not from conservatives or, or, or liberals. That's very wrong. And then what we know about Salvador... Ramos or Ramos uh, and his own background story. It's another familiar one, Kevin, is it? When you're thinking about Manchurian candidates or people that you might easily manipulate. He um, he ticked a few boxes, didn't he? He sure did. Yeah. And, and also he was buying uh, very expensive assault weaponry and ammunition. 
and spent at minimum three thousand, some estimates over five thousand dollars on on the uh, the rifle and the ammunition. And there was no clear indication of where he would have gotten that money. And this comes right on the heels of the mass shooting in uh, Michigan, where this uh, perpetrator had apparently confided his plans to a quote unquote retired FBI agent. And he told the guy he was setting off to do the shooting uh, more than half an hour before the shooting started. And the retired FBI agent, for some reason, didn't do anything about it, apparently. So uh, these things are suspicious. And uh, certainly, since we haven't solved the obvious Manchurian candidate cases, starting with the RFK assassination, I think we always have to be suspicious. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Something else which, which struck me as well was he is alleged to have shot his gran in the head at home before setting off for the school. And I know nothing about any of these things. I, I get my information on these things from, you know, researchers like yourself. But I wonder if shooting the gran was um, maybe his handler's way of um, testing if he was operational, I wonder. Or is that silly? No, that's definitely the sort of thing that John Hankey brings up when he makes the case that this was a Manchurian candidate operation. I think he mentioned that, actually. And also that uh, when uh, he, this Ramos or whatever, he appeared at the school, uh, he seemed uh, to hesitate and didn't really know what he was doing and that there uh, was the, then the, the door was, was then unlocked for him. I think he fired a few shots and which, of course, should have led to the door being locked. And then somehow the door was unlocked for him. And the story of why the door uh, was unlocked at that point is kind of incoherent. A a teacher had supposedly propped the door open to go out and get a smoke or whatever, and then uh, came back inside and uh, heard the the gunshot. And then for some reason didn't close the door, which presumably should have automatically locked when it closed. Uh, And this isn't the first time there's been this kind of anomaly around uh, locks that should have been working in schools uh, and shootings. So... Again, I'm I'm not really an expert on this either, but the people that I talk to, like John Hankey, are very suspicious about this. I've travelled, I don't think I've travelled as extensively as yourself, but I've travelled around, and as a journalist, I've met many, many people. And some some years ago, I met a couple of lovely gentlemen um, who uh, were UK soldiers in the 1970s. They'd never seen any action. So... They went, um, they went to Angola um, as mercenaries, as very well-paid mercenaries. And a couple of them went to prison. Their captain was, was killed. And that's all they did, really. And then they were left out of jail and they got on with their lives. They were nice fellas now. And one of them told me one night about the cold-bloodedness of the intelligence agencies and the cold-bloodedness of killers for hire. And I couldn't understand this because I've met some idiots in my time over the years and maybe there are people who would say that I'm an idiot. I don't think I've ever encountered real evil because I'll tell you what, Kevin, to to get into a young man's head and to set him on a course to murder children with machine guns. I mean, just the thought that those people actually exist chills me to the bone. And sometimes I wonder if it's even possible that such a person actually exists that will, as part of their job, what they are paid to do, will oversee the murder of youngsters in a classroom. It beggars belief. Do you have moments of doubt like that when you think such an evil can't possibly exist? 
Well, not so much anymore, Richie, because I've been studying this stuff for so long that it's become increasingly obvious throughout my lifetime that evil is is very real. When I was young and I was still in the kind of standard cultural matrix, I wasn't so sure. But, uh, you know, this is just one kind of example. And, you know, we could list uh, we could stay here for for many hours or days or weeks, months or years <laughs> listing the uh, kinds of atrocities and examples of behavior that seems just way outside what anything that we could ever imagine. But it does happen, um, proving that, yes, uh, evil really exists. And we know from psychology that there are uh, psychopaths who can kill human beings of whatever age as easily as they can swat an insect. And those people who make up, say, 2% of the U.S. population, smaller percentages most other places, uh, and probably within that population, there are ones that are more extreme and less extreme, and such people end up getting the professional killing jobs. And indeed, they, they test people for, you know, they give them the psycho psychopathy test. And if you test pretty close, you know, you don't have to be in the 2% to be cl a clinical psychopath. Maybe you're just like at the you know top 5% of psychopaths or whatever. Yeah. That's going to be an, an, an enhanced uh, something put on your resume if you want to go work for CIA or whatever. John Perkins talks about how they recruited him as an economic hitman yeah. after he successfully lied to cover up a crime. Amazing, huh? They sent him into countries to loan those countries money they couldn't pay back, which would collapse them economically, so that the biggest corporations in the world could just hoover up all the assets. And he did it. Great, um, great, great um, memory there, Kevin. Kevin Barrett is our guest, truthjihad.com broadcaster, author, academic. Good to have Kevin on, as always. I was fascinated to watch this BBC clip and uh, and then watch the... Uh, the 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 overall kind of mini doc about Paul Schrader, the the friend of of RFK who was assassinated in June of 1968. We're, we're told that Sirhan Sirhan uh, was the man who did it, but but Paul Schrader, who was injured himself on the night, says that he wants the case to be reopened. He, he's not happy about that. Now, as a keen student of such things, Kevin, I guess you're happy to hear that Schrader is out there saying another gunman may have been involved or the story doesn't add up. Um, good news, do you think? Yeah, although it, it's a little late coming from him yeah. because this has been an open and shut case that Sirhan was a Manchurian candidate virtually since it happened, although they did keep a wrap on some of the details. But the LAPD's own ballistics evidence proved that not one of Sirhan's bullets even hit Bobby Kennedy. That's right. And it proves that Bobby Kennedy was killed by a bullet fired from behind him at point blank range, leaving powder burns on his skull. And Sirhan never got closer than at the very closest six feet, and he was always in front of Bobby. Uh, more than a dozen bullets were fired. Again, this is coming from the police department's own ballistics evidence, and Sirhan's gun only held eight. Um, he is a totally ultra-hypnotizable individual at the you know the top 1% of the most hypnotizable suspects. You or I could probably walk up behind him, put our hands over his eyes, and say, you are feeling very sleepy, and, uh, and get him into a hypnotic state. And he has no memory of anything he did then. He had, There's no reason for him to have done this. Uh, his motive uh, to supposedly avenge Bobby Kennedy for for be not be, you know, for being a supporter of Israel is a complete joke. And in, indeed, I think that's actually a clue as to who really did it. We'll talk about why Ron Unz and yourself and others believe that, that, that Israel may have played a part in it. Yeah, I was going to make the point that that was the motive assigned to Sirhan was Bobby's, you know, support of Israel. Um... Before we do that, though, he's 78. 
years old. Um, what do we know about his well-being, Kevin? Sir Han, Sir Han, this fascinating. I mean, I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated by this guy and what happened to him. He he's such a huge figure in history. You know, not as obviously as important as as RFK or or JFK, but this guy. I've always been fascinated by this case. What do we know about how he's getting on today? Do we know anything? Well, you know, I haven't followed that aspect of the case uh, with you know really closely, but I know that. Uh, one of his attorneys, William Pepper, who's been involved in trying to get this case reopened, just as, as William Pepper did successfully reopen the Martin Luther King killing and indeed proved that the uh, American government uh, killed Dr. King. He proved that to a civil jury, which made that finding. Uh, so Bill Pepper has been also working on the Sirhan case. And I, from what he told me, um, you know, Sirhan is... Uh, getting along okay in in prison, basically a very normal person who just happens to not have the faintest idea what he did, what he uh, did. to be there, other than you know what he's been told, and uh, it's quite a miscarriage of justice that uh, somebody who was obviously a hypnotized patsy would be sitting in prison this long for a killing that they didn't commit. He's 78, you know, his whole life has been taken away from him. I agree with you. Everything you said is true. I can't argue with it. It's not conjecture. You've stated facts. He didn't. And no bullet came from his gun that then struck um, RFK. He had nothing to do with it. He didn't murder the, uh, you know, obviously, in everybody's opinion, was going to be uh, the next president of the United States. Bobby was undoubtedly a supporter of the State of Israel. Why then would elements of the Israeli government or the Israeli government or the Israeli secret services, why would they have benefited from the removal of Bobby? Well, actually, Bobby was not a supporter of Israel. He simply mouthed the platitudes that one is obliged to mouth if one is running for high office in the United States. But Everybody aware of the real situation knew then, as they know today, that the Kennedy family is a family of, quote unquote, notorious anti-Semites and that their distrust of Jewish power and so on goes back to the way they were brought up by their father, Joseph Kennedy, who essentially raised them to uh, head for high office. He said he was going to make sure one of his kids became president. He did. He, he created those kids. And uh, J- JFK was no fan of Israel. Uh, He was horrified by the Suez operation. Uh, He sided with the forces of liberation in the Arab world. And his sympathies, personal private sympathies, were entirely with the Palestinians, uh, as were Roberts, most likely. Uh, I don't have the proof of that. Uh, And and JFK was uh, absolutely on the warpath with Ben-Gurion over Israel's nuclear program. JFK was anti-nuclear proliferation, and he knew that if there was one country in the world that shouldn't get nuclear weapons, it was Israel. So he vowed to shut it down. And that problem came to a head in early 1963. Ben-Gurion resigned from his position in office and went underground. And then the next thing you know, an assassination plot emerges run by the CIA's top mole in U.S. intelligence, James Jesus Angleton, who now is honored with monuments in Israel uh, because as head counterintelligence chief who ran a CIA within the CIA, he presided over the assassination of the U.S. president. Um, and the primary motive, again, was to make sure that Israel could develop the nuclear program that Ben-Gurion felt that it needed uh, for its survival. That's a compelling argument. But there's a problem with it, I think. Didn't RFK write a series of articles in his early 20s when he was actually in Israel? He was working for the Boston Post. And in the articles, he excoriated, I love that word, 
um, British and Arab collusion to destroy Israel. So he's in he's in um, the country. He's there on behalf of the Boston Post, and he is basically nailing his colours to the mast of of Israel of the Star of David flag. So that kind of flies in the face. You know, he he apparently loved it there. He loved what he called the Jewish inhabitants of the of the land. Well, uh, again, I'm not aware of whether that was uh, basically a political thing. It's very, yeah, it's possible he made it as a, uh, he went there as a, a political gesture and then actually liked the people. Um, and indeed, it's entirely possible that if indeed Israel did kill JFK to save its nuclear program, they would need to kill Bobby, even if Bobby was not at that point, fully convinced or knowledgeable that it had been largely the Israelis that had killed his brother, because he, once he was president, he might have been in a position to mount a real investigation and nail the people who had really done it. And assuming that the Israelis and their U.S. assets like Angleton had been involved or especially the most likely prime movers, then that would have been a motive to take out Bobby, regardless of his feelings for Israel. But again, I don't see any evidence that Bobby was a particularly strong supporter of Israel. Simply going to Israel on a political visit and saying you had a good time, uh, that doesn't uh, really... No, hang on, hang on. That's, that's mischaracterizing what happened. He was a very young reporter in his 20s and he was sent to Israel to report on it. And he wrote articles, and obviously I'm not making this up, he wrote articles basically which were t- terribly critical of the, the British state and the and Arab nations for colluding to destroy uh, Israel. He couldn't have been any more pro-Israel. But I want to talk about, this is all relevant. I love these okay, conversations. I'm sorry, I didn't realize it was his early 20s. Yeah, he that, was very young. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And that, people I, change. Of course they do. Listen, it's not a gotcha. I'm not trying to say I got you. With I'm just saying that, you know, it. I'm, I'm not convinced that, that Israel was was behind the murder of of, uh, of Bobby Kennedy. No, they might have been. I'm not saying they weren't, but I'm not convinced of it. And you and I have, have um, friend, friend, in a very friendly way, we've always butted heads over the JFK thing. I know might have done it. I've got to tell you, um, I've been looking into, uh, I read a book called I Hear You Paint Houses, which was turned into a Netflix film, which is very good, Martin Scorsese, called The Irishman, uh, about a guy called Frank Sheeran, who was a notorious union uh, a leader, but who was also a, a contract killer. And he makes a very compelling case, does um, Frank Sheeran, he's dead now, of course, that JFK was murdered by the Genovese family. He makes a very compelling case for that. In fact, he says um, that he brought the rifles that were used in the murder of JFK because obviously there were several shooters. And funny enough, another top boss called Russell Buffalino, who I think is played by Joe Pesci in the film, Kevin, um, Buffalino at a dinner some years later when they were openly talking about killing Jimmy Hoffa, which Frank Sheeran claims credit for, or not credit for, he, he, he claims he, he, he killed Hoffa, that when they were talking about Hoffa being killed, uh, Buffalino made some comment along the lines of, um, because Hoffa thought that he was untouchable, Buffalino said, well, does he not remember Dallas? Or they did it in Dallas. So, not, not because I want to believe it, but t- to me it kind of makes sense that you know, for events that happened before and during JFK's presidency, you know, Cuba and all of that, that the mafia had more motivation than anybody to kill uh, JFK, even if the Israelis hated him. 
um, you know, and they they thought he would stand in the way of their nuclear programme. So what do you think of that? Like the, the, I know you've heard all this before, uh, the Genovese. What do you think of that theory that they murdered him? Well, the, you know, you did, what you just said is certainly not evidence that would convict anybody in a court of law. But yeah, I, I agree that there were organized crime family elements involved in the killing. And one of the most obvious examples of that is Jacob Rubenstein, a.k.a. Jack Ruby, who was a hitman and bagman for Mickey Cohen, the gangster leader of the West Coast uh, organized crime syndicate, who was immortalized in the film The Godfather as the guy who puts the horse's head in the bed. That was Mickey Cohen. That was Jack Rubenstein's boss. Jack Rubenstein was the killer who was tasked with taking out the patsy, Lee Harvey Oswald, who had somehow escaped from the uh, first attempt to silence him. Yeah. So, yeah, Jack Rubenstein was organized crime. Uh, and obviously organized crime was involved at some level. But then you ask, well, who is organized crime? Well, Mickey Cohen is the single biggest fundraiser for Israel that Israel ever had. Uh, and the leader of organized crime in the Western Hemisphere at that time was named Meyer Lansky who was uh, basically a CNM or an unpaid because he had too much money they didn't have to pay him uh, agent of Israel. So once again, if you're, you know, the, the two main suspects in this crime actually are uh, organized crime and the CIA. And to the extent that you blame organized crime rather than the CIA, you're actually tending to blame Israel because the forces that dominate organized crime at the very top level, such as Meyer Lansky, who was the banker of organized crime, pulled the money strings and basically gave the top orders. He was the you know the one that guy at the very top that nobody else could mess with. You know, you're talking more about Israel. And then you talk about the CIA. You're also you end up looking at, at Angleton. And again, Angleton is Israel. So uh, it seems to me that basically all the roads do lead to Israel, at the very least, being a major partner in this operation. Well, you had some pretty powerful Jewish mob families in the East, and you had one or two in the West, but they weren't nearly as powerful or as successful as the five families and the Genoveses, who Sheeran is convinced or was convinced um, murdered JFK. Um, they were far more powerful in terms of organised crime and their influence than these other uh, Cohen and, and, and Lansky, who, who I'm well aware of. It's just so murky, Kevin. Your critics have said over the years, and I know you're very thick-skinned, you don't mind taking on your critics. They say that because of your, and I would say, legitimate grievances with the State of Israel, I have no time for the State of Israel, I don't support it, I don't believe it should exist, I've, that's been my position for years, I despise what it does to the Palestinians, the indigenous people, on an hour-by-hour -hour basis, I hate the fact that Israel gets away with it, but I also have great admiration for Israel. And I said this to you before and it shocked you until you realise what I actually meant by it. If it's true that Israel has the influence that you believe it has and others, I say absolutely well done, fair play to you. If a little nation like Israel can control, politically control countries like France and the UK and the United States, you've got to take your hat off to them and say well done. You know, and, and yeah, I mean, that's true in the yeah. same way that you would have to say that like this very small class of wealthy uh, slave owners and plantation yeah. owners in the old south had done really well to be able to uh, brutally enslave all these people and make a killing at it or any other small class of exploiters, say the, the Russian nobility that enslaved the serfs. Or, uh, you know, Genghis Khan and the steppe nomads who were really, you know, uh, brilliant at organizing their fellow steppe nomads to uh, do these great bloody conquests. It's true that, that, you know, ruthless people 
who grab power that's wildly out of proportion to their numbers and then use that power to uh, loot, exploit, and slaughter other people are admirable in the sense that they're really good at what they do. But they're not so, the enemy, yeah, are they? Right this is a conversation you and I have had before, but they're not the enemy. I had this conversation with a Jewish gentleman who is a supporter of this show and a friend. And I had this conversation with him, and he, he's no a friend of, of the state of Israel uh, either. But he's Jewish, and he's a proud Jewish. He goes to, a Jewish man, he goes to the synagogue, he's a nice guy, he minds his business, he looks after his family. We had this conversation, and he said he was listening to the, to the time you and I had this conversation about who should we reserve our wrath for uh, the most, for the Israeli um, puppet masters who managed to infiltrate um, politics in the UK and, and get their own way and in America, or should we reserve our wrath for um, the idiots that run our governments here? Who's worse, like the Israelis or the Irish government, the American government, the, the British government? I would say, and I've learned, I've come to feel this. I can't say it's true because it's just how I feel what I believe. Um, our governments are far worse than the Israeli government ever was. Well, I think the correct answer to your question, you know, who do we blame, the Israelis or the, the corrupt stooges who let them get away with it, is uh, both A and B. Fair enough. But outside of what Israel does, isn't the UK continuing to send billions of pounds worth of ammunition to the Saudis to absolutely rain brimstone down on, on, on Yemen? I mean, Israel's got nothing to do with that. I mean, my, my Jewish listeners, they often say to me, come on, Richie, whatever Israel does, your own countries. And this is not a case of what aboutery. It's just a case of being fair and balanced in a genuine way. Um, what our countries do, Kevin, I mean, Jesus Christ, as we're speaking, uh, forgive the, the, the blasphemy, as we're speaking, um, US missiles are killing people somewhere. Um, the British missiles are killing people somewhere. And it's not always because the Israelis have asked them to do it. It's because we, we've got tyrants in, in our capital cities too. Uh, you're absolutely right. And in fact, some of the people who do try to blame Israel for everything um, find that I'm out of line these days for being so disgusted with the U.S. government and its actions in setting up the Ukraine war, uh, which I don't think actually is primarily being done by Israel or Zionists. I think this is part of the it's better seen as as the uh, U.S. attempt to maintain the unipolar world extended and ultimately set up a one world government under neoliberal principles. And that effort is coming out for, of Washington more than Tel Aviv. And so now I, ha I, I have people who think that I'm too easy now on Israel or the Jews because I'm not really blaming them for the horrific uh, crimes that the U.S. committed in setting up World War III by uh, orchestrating the 2014 coup in Kiev and then uh, laying the bear trap for the Russians and creating this war. So yeah, there's all kinds of evil, and maybe even the largest scale evil like this impending World War III probably isn't uh, really a Zionist operation at all. So yeah, it's, I think you're you're right. We, uh, we don't want to fall into that trap that some have fallen into of essentially trying to blame Zionists for everything. We just have to blame them for what they've really done, which is a disproportionate share of evil, but it's certainly not all the evil, maybe not even a majority of the evil. Your, your critics or your detractors can, as we say, lump it or they can do one. Um, I like people who say what it is they believe based on their understanding of 
what they've seen. It doesn't matter to me whether my guests are right or wrong. And I hope it doesn't matter to my guests whether I'm right or wrong. It's all about having a chat and, and, and throwing a few theories out there and letting the listeners make uh, their own minds up, Kevin. I've always admired you for that. You call it as you see it. And that's all I care about, is that you're authentic, that you are saying what it is you really believe. Um, a lot of people come, and, come into a saying, you know, their hearts are broken at the thoughts of Sirhan Sirhan, 78 years old, in a jail cell for something he didn't do. And uh, it's only just this January, Kevin, um, you'll probably know this, that um, he had another request for parole denied by the district attorney of Los Angeles County, a guy called George Gascon. I mean, what what reason could there be to keep this guy in jail at 78? I mean, they couldn't say that he's a threat to public safety, right? They're keeping this guy in jail just in case he comes out and he goes into a, a, a psychoanalyst's office and they do some regressive therapy, Kevin, and he, and, he, and he names some names maybe. Maybe that's why they want to keep him in jail. Yeah, that's a pretty good guess, Richie. Yeah. And, and of course, they also they want to make sure that uh, the idea, the public myth, that he's guilty of this killing is maintained, even though they know that that's not the case. They know that departing from the established narrative uh, by pardoning him, which kind of gives the impression that maybe he isn't really the uh, the vicious killer that we were told, the, the evil Palestinian terrorist, uh, it would give the wrong impression to the public. So they need to save their 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 myth that he's he's the evil terrorist killer. Uh, and and by letting letting him go, that would be indicating that maybe he wasn't. Kevin, I'll ask you a final question. Thanks for coming back on today, by the way. Love having you on. Always. Truthjihad.com. You can read Kevin in lots of places. Uns.com. There's a lot of really interesting articles on Uns.com. I was gently ribbing Ron Uns at the top of the programme, you know, about Israel did everything kind of a thing. But uh, in jest, tongue in cheek, Kevin, uh, it, it, it has to be said. Do we mythologise JFK and Bobby Kennedy? Do we... Wrongly. I asked the late, great Jim Mars this question. I loved Jim. I loved having him on this programme. And I said, Jim, because Jim loved him. He loved he loved uh, JFK. I said, do we, are we looking back with the old rose-tinted glasses? Did we believe these guys were going to do things that they really probably wouldn't have done? Is that a fair question? Do we mythologise those brothers looking back? Sure, we mythologise them, but I think we have good reasons to. You know, they what they represent is, you know, they, they were kids who grew up with a mobster father, uh, an a oligarch. And, you know, let's face it, the U.S. has largely been ruled by these uh, borderline criminal or even over the borderline criminal oligarchs for a very long time. Well, Joe Kennedy raised his kids to be public servants. So they grew up knowing about the world of criminal oligarchs that really runs the country and to a large extent the world. But they also grew up being taught to think of themselves as public servants. And in a sense, they were the last people that could, the last major political figures in the U.S. who really could think of themselves as public servants because the, their murders proved that you can't be a public servant. You can only be a tool of the criminal oligarchs. And since then, the criminal oligarchs have cemented their rule over the United States, which is now a democracy in name only. And the Kennedys were the last flash of light that there actually could be such a thing as public service and we really could be a, a republic and a democracy. And now that's all dead. So there are actually really good reasons for mythologizing them. Great final word, Kevin. Regards to Rabia, as always, uh, we haven't got time to talk about, you know, your future plans. Maybe you want to keep those uh, plans uh, private for now, but I am obviously intrigued by them. 
whatever they are, the best of luck with them. I know you'll be back on this show really soon anyway uh, to chat about geopolitical affairs. Love having you on, Kevin. Truthjihad.com and uns.com. Is there another website or, or should we just leave it at those two? Well, my Substack, which is kevinbarrett.substack.com, is a good place to see most of my stuff uh, early. Bye for now, Kevin. Thanks for coming back on. Great to have you on. Okay, thanks, Richie. Bye, pal. Bye now. Kevin Barrett, folks. Academic, author, broadcaster, researcher. Live on uh, Thursday's Richie Allen Show. The time is fast approaching. Uh, 11 minutes, is it, to the top of the air. Because the old throat is getting a bit on the croaky side there, I'm going to have to take a little bit of a tune, which I don't ordinarily do at this time, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support The Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Lovely, elastica and connected on The Richie Allen Show. Brown Eye says, Richie is a right two-faced twat. Am I? When two weeks ago I said it was suspicious, I was said to have crawled out of the woodwork. Did I? You'll have to find the audio. I don't know who you are. What was suspicious? The shooting? The shooting? Nobody said that the shooting wasn't suspicious. I've been talking about Manchurian candidates and the Uvalde shooting from day one. I've been wide open to that possibility, brown eye. Oh, God. You know what kind word gets you further, you know? (laughs) Oh, God love him. God love him. Hi, thanks Pandora. Faisal says, is it really Israel that controls all the powerful NATO countries? Or is it the banksters and corporate power players who use the Israel project to obscure their control of Western countries? That's a beautifully put message. And that neatly sums up my thoughts, Faisal. I've said it for years. Israel, the state of Israel and the project has been used by the very entities you mentioned, to obscure what it is they are doing. And people fall for the, it's the Jews, it's the Jews, when it's not the Jews. It's not even the Israeli government. It's not the Jews. The Jews are not your enemy. They're not. Nor are the Muslims, or the Sikhs, or anybody else. But that's my opinion. For those who believe it is the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, you believe whatever you want. I'm certainly no barrier to your beliefs or to the expression of your beliefs. Of course I'm not. I've interviewed people from the very far conservative right on this programme who believe it's the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. I've had them on and I've argued with them. And I believe my argument is stronger. It's not the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. God, no, it's not. You might get to know some Jews and if you do, you'll realise they're not controlling anything. Uh, Monk says, for folks that don't believe people cannot be programmed to do assassinations, I recommend an episode of Darren Brown called Assassin. That's well done, Monk. I remember that episode some years ago. It's very good. Grumpy Cat says, uh, Kevin is wondering if Anjam is working for MI6. I think he is, says Grumpy Cat. However, we're looking at another divide and conquer trick because the producer of the film, Lady of Heaven, is Yasser Habib. Or, yeah, Yasser Habib, who is also a very likely MI6 agent. His cover is as a Shia cleric. But have you any evidence that the producer of the film is a MI6 agent, Grumpy Cat? Now, listen to me. When I'm asking for any evidence, 
I'm not saying that you have to be wrong. I don't know. What the hell do I know? But I need some evidence. Some hard evidence. We might suspect that various people. Daza says, Richie, I think you're a bit of a hypocrite. What about all the protests in Craggy Island when they released the Passion of St. Tibulus? That's right. Down with that sort of thing. Remember when Bishop Len Brennan got back from his holiday in California or something like that. He said, um, you've made the film the most successful film they ever had in that cinema. The more you tell people they shouldn't see something, the more they'll go to see it. And you know, film producers have been very clever over the years in doing that. You know, telling lies like the film they tried to ban and all that crap. And people go rushing to the box office to get their ticket. I can't wait to see it. We, my, myself, my aunt, my aunt Margaret and others, we went to see The Silence of the Lambs in the Regina Cinema in Waterford in, it has to be 1991 when The Silence of the Lambs came out. We were 16, I think, or 17, 16 or 17, I can't remember. 16, I think we were. And we were petrified going in. Such was the propaganda about The Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal the Cannibal. They did an amazing job of convincing people that this was such a scary film that people of a weak disposition shouldn't go and see it. It was directed by Jonathan Demme, of course. A brilliant turn by, by Jodie Foster as Clarice Starling. And I'm still not convinced that uh, Anthony Hopkins was the best Hannibal Lecter. And it's not because I'm a pretentious arse now. Brian Cox in Manhunter, fantastic. That's, that's evil, that. That's somebody a big, strong... Because in the books, in the books, um, particularly Red Dragon, Hannibal is a strong man. But Anthony Hopkins looks like a little, kind of petite little man playing Lecter. Now, he plays him with a stillness that's creepy. Anyway, I'm talking through my arse as usual. It's time for me to bid you good day. Uh, remember, if you buy an ebook on markbierski.com between now and Sunday at midday, all of that money will be sent to The Richie Allen Show. You'll be supporting it, The Richie Allen Show, and you'll, you'll go into a draw to win one of 14 beautiful crystals or pendants. Thank you so much to Anjam Chowdhury for coming on the programme and to Kevin Barrett. I'll talk to you on Sunday at 10 if the thingamajig is your thingamajig, if you happen to like the Sunday Morning Melody show. If you don't, we'll speak next Monday at 5 on The Richie Allen Show. Look after yourselves and one another and have a lovely weekend. I'm leaving you with the stunning and a stunning song called Half Past Two. Goodbye.